0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production between the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. My name is Mark Bonica, and I am an assistant professor in the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy. Today's guest is Steve Roach, the president and CEO of Marlborough Hospital. Marlboro Hospital is located in Marlboro, Massachusetts, and is part of the UMass Memorial Healthcare System. Steve is an alumnus of my program, Health Management and Policy, here at the University of New Hampshire, which makes this an especially enjoyable interview for me. Steve started his career working in the financial side of healthcare delivery, becoming a chief financial officer for a community hospital at only 30, and not long after, the chief executive officer of the same hospital at only 33, making him the youngest hospital CEO in Massachusetts at the time. He developed something of a specialty in working with financially troubled hospitals, helping turn around several nonprofit and for-profit facilities. We conclude the podcast with a discussion about leadership, mentorship, and coaching. I hope you enjoy listening to Steve's story, and if you find it valuable, won't you leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. It helps other people discover us. Thanks for listening, and here is Steve Roach. Welcome to the podcast, Steve.
1: Thanks, Mark. Appreciate you having me on.
0: So uh, I'm excited to talk to you because you are a graduate of not only the University of New Hampshire, but the Department of Health Management and Policy, which is the department where I teach. So what drew you to UNH and why health management?
1: Well, I went to UNH primarily because I could not did not want to go to my state school, UMaine, but choosing HMP was relatively easy. I have a lot of family that's worked in healthcare. My mom used to run the dietary department at Eastern Maine Medical Center. I have some cousins who are physicians, a lot of aunts and whatnot who are nurses, and spent a lot of time myself injured and in, in the hospital. So uh, <laughs> a lot of opportunity to uh, understand how it worked, and I was always fascinated by the uh, impact each hospital has on its own community
0: so you were uh what was uh what brought you to the hospital so often
1: a lot of sports activities, yeah. six brothers uh, who used to you know rough me up a little bit here and there
0: nice okay so so is it like uh uh you you weren't just the president, you were also a customer kind of uh, going back to that that old commercial
1: um, absolutely absolutely I still am you know you always yeah. have the bumps and bruises and you have to use your own place, and uh, the staff does a great job on everything.
0: Uh, in your career, you kind of start you know coming out of hMP you you leaned towards finance. Was that a thing you discovered while you were an undergrad, or how did you wind up with the interest in finance
1: it was a, It was not a career goal initiative. it actually came out through the studies at UNH as well as just looking at my end goals I wanted to be in hospitals and trying to femize in the clinician so where would be my best fit and opportunity to get exposure across the whole entity. And working in finance, I was able to work with the clinicians and understand what they did and how it impacted the overall business function. Plus, when you look at healthcare, it is such a uh, huge piece of the federal spend every year. Uh, you know, the economics of healthcare aren't going away. So you better understand it no matter what you do in healthcare. Um, so it was a good it was a good start for me to get into that and get to the the bread and butter early.
0: Well, I mean, I, I'm a I, I favor finance uh, as well, but uh, that's a pretty good insight for a for an undergrad. Or is that more retrospective, uh, kind of looking back and understanding what you did?
1: No, I think it's it was just it's good to start that way. You got to see the whole business. At the end of the day, everybody needs to get paid or be paid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know it's an underlying piece, but you can't do the business without uh, running the the administrative side of it.
0: Absolutely. So you graduated in '95, in and your first job was at Brigham and Women's as a financial analyst. How'd you how'd you wind up at Brigham? Did you did you do an internship there, or or what drew you to Brigham?
1: Uh, it's actually kind of a, a, a interesting piece. I was actually talking to my wife about it last night. We. uh, my brother actually used to run hospitals, and he actually knew Jeff Otten, who was the CEO at the time, and got my resume in through that avenue. But at the same time, you know, back when we didn't have cell phones in '95, which is crazy, but we had already moved. I had already moved to Boston and uh, hadn't had a job yet. It was interviewing, and I decided I would call and check my UNH voicemail box, and. The Brigham had called there and left a message to interview, so it was interesting. You know, now if you have a cell phone, you're always there. But back in, the, in that time, you had to be aware and follow up. Uh, and I got a great opportunity to go in there and meet with them basically two weeks before they became Partners Healthcare.
0: Oh wow! Okay. So what did you learn in that in that first job? I mean you were young you just come out of of the program it seemed like you had a pretty but but being a financial analyst sounds like a a, a great entree into into um the administration side like we were just talking about
1: Yeah it, you know I I learned a ton the fact of the matter is you know HMP gave me a great base understanding of the healthcare system and how it worked but you 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 need to get into the details and understand you know we didn't spend all of our time on spreadsheets and understanding how Medicare is going to pay you for every item or a new procedure that's coming in and how you fund it. But spending time there, I was able to, and I got lucky, I was in the inventory area as the outpatient areas of hospitals were booming and got to spend time in pretty much every clinical aspect, trying to figure out where we should make investments for the larger academic medical center, and, and where we should put buildings to grow our business. So it was a good opportunity to get in there at the ground level, and I've got the benefit of working with some very intelligent people who gave me lots of opportunity.
0: One of the topics that comes up a lot with young folks uh, coming out of, you know, like a lot of the kids that are graduating uh, from the program now, talk about when should they go back to get their graduate degree. It looks like you started pretty quickly. At going to school, I assume at night at Bentley.
1: Yeah, mainly at night, uh, and then some weekend classes just to get through it. I think you know, it it all depends on what what direction you want to go after graduation. You know, if you're going to stay on the clinical and the research side, you could probably convert uh, directly into a master's program or a PhD program. But for me, in the finance side, that wasn't 100 percent of our core background. It made sense for me to get a couple years of life experience and then parlay that onto the MBA and understand a little bit more general finance. I think you can be too focused in one area. For me with HMP, I had a really great base and strong background, mm-hmm. but I didn't have a strong detailed background in finance. And for me to you know, get into that, it gave me more opportunity to understand how other businesses work and you can bring that back to healthcare.
0: And and that's a discussion I've had a fair amount with with the folks coming out of here is like, well, what should I do an MHA or an MBA? And I, I tend to lean, I tend to lean uh, toward the MBA for for people who've already done something like HMPs. That that kind of sounds like what you're saying as well.
1: Yeah, and I'm gonna you know throw the roses out to HMP. You know, I think your undergrad. For, for most people who don't have an undergrad in health management and policy and go and get an, an HMA, uh, go to the grad school side of it, that's good. But if you've already got the HMP, honestly, I think you get 99% of the grad piece as an undergrad. Yeah. It's what you do with it long term. So I think, you know, it's good to have alternative experiences and bringing them all back together as an opportunity to grow yourself. So
0: you were at the Brigham for about three years, uh, and then you moved over to Emerson Hospital in Concord in uh, 1998, which is a, looked like around the time you were finishing up your MBA, and took the role of director of financial and strategic planning. You're still a young guy at this point. That sounds like a, a pretty big job for somebody that's an early careerist. How did, how did, you, how did you land, uh, land a, a role with uh, that level of responsibility so young?
1: you know, it's all about your contacts. Somebody I had worked with at the Brigham had gone there about a year uh, prior to me going there. uh, And she gave me some opportunities and reached out to me to see if I'd be interested in it. Clearly, I was probably a little green for that position. But, you know, the good part is I have a a little bit of a different skill set than a lot of people that would be looking for that. Uh, Most people would be coming in with lots of background and experience in one way. And I had experience across a large spread of clinical areas. So we had to actually get out there and take the opportunity to do it. I I did hit some barriers because when people see you come in and you're young (laughs) and a little full of yourself a little bit, (laughs) uh, it creates some challenges uh, and it took a while to overcome some of that. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, we were pretty successful there, uh, turning the organization around and getting it back to profitability.
0: Yeah. So it was, uh, so at the time it was, Emerson was a struggling nonprofit, as you mentioned, it sounds like kind of turnaround sort of become your specialty as we kind of move through. What does it take to turn around a hospital and, and why do they get into trouble in the first place?
1: That, that's a, that's a, that's a fun question. I, I'll start with the second piece of that okay and this is this is just my perspective of why hospitals get themselves in trouble one uh, it usually has to do with the fact that we're very insular we're only focused on what we're doing as an organization and that's where a lot of places have gotten themselves in trouble you really need to be actively looking at what's going on in a larger market is there opportunity to do something with partnerships to grow your geographic reach to basically create an entrenchment strategy where you own your market with some support from elsewhere keep your keep friends close keep your enemies closer type thing uh, and many times you have to work with them but getting back to the piece where the you know community hospitals usually get themselves in trouble good bad or indifferent it, it usually relates to some leadership issues combined with the historic board leadership uh, many of the hospitals that get themselves in trouble have long-term boards that have never had really good turnover, fresh eyes, uh, where they're looking at what's going on in the detail. Um, and that has a lot to do with just the, the general history of community hospitals are community-based and centric, and they want to have a board who's made up of the leaders of the community. That doesn't necessarily mean they're the best leaders for the hospital. Hmm. And then they, they get themselves you know. They they rely on what they've done in the past to expect outcomes in the future. And you always have to be changing and adjusting to what you need to be. Uh, and that's where they usually end up getting themselves in trouble.
0: So you mentioned, I have a sense what you're saying is that there's good turnover. Like what is a, what does good turnover look like on a board?
1: Um, ideally, you know, you know, and this is, you know, different different boards have different practices. Uh, A good practice is to have a max of 10 years for any board member. Um, You could certainly have them back on if they take a gap afterwards, if they were very contributory. But I think it's, you know, getting good regular turnover and new blood into the boards brings a new perspective. It, It creates energy and energy creates change.
0: So you mentioned earlier about trying to overcome uh, the impression of, of others had of you being young and, and in that role. I mean, if you're so so for a young, aggressive, uh, hard charging, early careerist, as you were at the time, what advice would you give to them for kind of dealing with the skepticism, perhaps of a more senior, you know, having to, to work with more senior leaders uh, and try to establish credibility?
1: Yeah, it's it's a tough one. I think it, you know, everybody's got different cycles on it. You know, when I came in, we were just getting into email. Now the people <laughs> coming in behind us, computers are basic they're attached to their hands unlike our 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 age. It was a it was a tool and we've gotten better at it, but just the skill set of people coming out of school now is way more advanced than ours, and that's intimidating to people who are and you know, towards the end of their careers. So it I do think, you know, come in, be confident. You really need to push your skill sets, but you need to be able to balance that with how you're being perceived with the different people. You know, you may need to listen a little bit more. And that's not necessarily a great skill set everybody has coming out of school. When you're full of yourself and you're confident, you think you know the world. But there are some benefits to listening to the long-term knowledge and tweaking that and using your current knowledge to, to get a better product in the long-term.
0: So you were at Emerson for about four years. And then in 2003, you were hired as the CFO for Neshoba Valley Medical Center, uh, another hospital that was uh, having some some financial difficulty. Uh, were you already developing a reputation as a turnaround specialist this early in your career?
1: Uh, I, I'd say probably not at that point. I think you need okay. to do a three or four of them to really do it. I think myself, I was focusing on it. I like the environment where there's definitely enough energy and nervousness to make change happen. I do think organizations need to continue to evolve. I'm moving out to the that was an interesting one because that that's my first foray into the for-profit world. Okay. I actually joined a company in Nashville and we purchased that hospital basically out of bankruptcy. Um, oh, wow. and, and it was, uh, you know, a little bit of a flyer from my perspective, but it also fit within my career aspirations. It was an opportunity to go in, uh, and try something different. Uh, you know for-profit healthcare is not strong in Massachusetts is a few of us. There's more now than there used to be, but it was interesting to go in there and learn the different approaches, which I think now that it was a good perspective for me because I'm able to take the differences between not-for-profit and for-profit healthcare and try to expand and bring that back in my current role in a not-for-profit and, and, and how we do that. And I think the biggest difference between a not-for-profit and a for-profit is execution and willingness to take risk.
0: So you find uh, not-for-profits are more risk-averse? Is that
1: Yeah, we like we like to review and discuss and do research and get as much information as possible. We almost want to get to the 95th percentile of confidence before we implement something where the for profits will get to 70, 75 and say, let's try it. And if we if it doesn't work great, we'll fix it on the fly. Okay. and I think it's a it's a good approach, but you have to be careful what you're using it for.
0: So where does that, uh, I mean, you said, be careful what you're using it for. Where does that, where does that, why does the caution come about on the not-for-profit side and, and, and when is that appropriate?
1: Yeah. So on the, on the, you know, it really comes down to the scale of the decision on a for-profit side. Unfortunately, good, bad, or indifferent, you're beholden to the stake, to the shareholder, You're not necessarily beholden to the community. So you're making decisions and you don't want to have a failure that has a large negative outcome. Either you implement something that causes great patient harm, which causes harm to the reputation of the facility, which drives down your volume, your revenues and the shareholder price. Whereas in the not for profit, you know, we we get so much information. We're very confident we don't fail that often, but it takes us forever to implement things. So we're giving up the opportunity cost.
0: Okay. You 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 mentioned that uh, when you moved to Neshoba, it was part of uh, an acquisition uh, and a conversion from converting Neshoba to a for-profit entity. How did that opportunity come about for you?
1: Again, through contacts, somebody who was at another facility, not this one, and just put me in contact with the the vice president of finance who for the for the. Uh, I guess the ownership company in Nashville just put me in contact with him. I reached out and we just met for dinner and it was one of those random events where basically at dinner, he would have been probably one of my best friends I've ever had in my life. Just, we were literally lockstep in, in, in everything we were thinking about. It was bizarre.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's nice. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. no. You were really young to, to get this offer. I mean, I, I just keep saying this, and it seems like, I mean, you've just, you, you know, uh, 2003, when you took this role, you would have been, what, maybe 30?
1: Yeah, I was just turning 30. It was actually my 30th birthday when I got the offer.
0: Wow. So, I mean, to become a CFO of a hospital is not something that usually happens quite that early in somebody's career
1: no and i think it's i think there is a benefit on the for profit side they're more you know they they're they're more than more willing to take some risk okay and they were taking you know they usually take some risk with their leadership teams one they can pay them a little less because they're taking the risk on it more incentive based anyway you you get paid for what you what you achieve as an organization and getting in there and bringing new blood and new life i think it they were willing to take a flyer on me, but I was also taking a flyer on them because this is a hospital that was coming out of bankruptcy. Yeah.
0: yeah. So that could have failed. You could have, um, uh, you could have wound up without a job. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, but it didn't, uh, it, it, things worked out there. And in 2006, you were actually promoted to be CEO. Uh, yep. so kind of carrying that forward three years your, here, you're like 33 and you're CEO of a, of a, of a community hospital. That's kind of amazing.
1: Yeah, uh, I was the youngest CEO in the state and I was for the next, next 12, 13 years still.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. So, I mean, what was it like, um, uh, becoming a CEO at such a young age?
1: Um, I one, you know, obviously it was flattering and it's great to, you know, be recognized for everything you've tried to do. But at the end of the day, it's funny. I, I honestly, nothing really changed. We had such a small leadership team um, okay. that we basically changed out one part, added me into one, and brought somebody in behind me. And when that happened, it was seamless. So we were all still working on the same programs, projects, outcomes. And it was good. You know, We had people to learn from. So we had different people in different markets doing different things. That was the best part about the for-profit. We had hospitals in seven states, and we could... See what they were doing in those markets. Massachusetts is a little different than most, but uh, we were usually ahead of the curve. It could bring some knowledge and experience to our our, our uh, other colleagues.
0: So you were you were at this point you were part of a system. Uh, mm-hmm. So you weren't you weren't you had some guidance perhaps, and you were sharing information. Is that what kind of what I'm hearing?
1: Yeah, yeah, we had when you look at the leaders of that company with all of us, we had over, you know, 2 200 years of experience running hospitals for everybody. And it was great because you're always working with a peer and a colleague who could give you information, help you out in a tight spot. Everybody was always available for a phone call to discuss an issue. And it worked out great. It was probably one of the best culture organizations I've ever worked in.
0: Now, how did your background in finance Help you move into the CEO role, and 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 I think about this because I mean the CEO role you're now you're going beyond the focus on um, kind of that high level performance and 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 focusing I mean you've got to pay attention to all of the operations. Mm -hmm. Um, Is is that not a significant shift in in um, kind of the role and and what you have to think about and and so I guess.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'd have to say it is and it isn't. Um, you know, I don't think any anybody in healthcare will tell you you can you can survive with good financials or you can survive with good quality if your financials and quality are bad on the other side of it. You can't have a good quality hospital and succeed with poor financials. And you can't have good financials with a poor quality hospital and succeed long term. You you really need to find a balance between the two. Um, and you know, at least with Essent, which is the for profit I worked for, we were really driven around both sides of it. You had to have good quality outcomes. You had to have great physician relationships. Could you go out and recruit new physicians to your market? Because that's you know you need to make sure you're you're stabilizing those programs you have and growing new programs. It's much easier to do that and to cut expenses to survive, but you can't have good finances unless you've got good quality.
0: Sure, My, I guess what I'm thinking about is, you know, now you're 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 stepping into the CEO role. Isn't that a change? I mean, well, what were the big changes for you? Like, what what um, you know, stepping out of the CFO role into the CEO role. What was the big um, what do you look back on as being the biggest kind of, uh, refocusing of, of how you thought about your job and, and, uh, what you did on a day-to-day basis? Okay.
1: Uh, that, the, the, biggest change, I think from my perspective was as a CFO, you're really in the background, you're working on all the projects and all the, the programming and the financials. But as you move to the CEO role, you actually get closer to the front end employees, Rounding with staff, meeting with the staff, hearing their concerns, making sure that you're communicating effectively to everybody in the organization, that's a big change. And really working hand in hand with what they're doing.
0: What was it like trying to make that shift to thinking about, you know, now focusing on communicating all the way through the organization, influencing the whole organization?
1: Um, it it, it was not a simple thing. I think a lot of it is rewiring the the way your system thinks. Many times in the finance, you know, numbers are black and white. The number is the number. It just is there. But when you're dealing with individuals and understanding their issues and concerns and perspective, you really need to connect a little bit more and, and, and understand everything has two sides to every issue. You know, it's not black and white. There's a lot of gray area and we have to make decisions and interpret the gray area to get on the same page with some people sometimes.
0: You talked about focusing on recruiting physicians. Yep. What did, what was that process like for you? Was that something new for you when you moved into the CEO role or had you done, had that been something you were working with as a CFO as well?
1: I, I had worked with it a little bit as a CFO, you know, clearly as a small, when you're in a small hospital, everybody in the leadership team spends some time doing everything, but you know, it moved from being a, a member to really being responsible for the outcomes. You know, did we recruit the right physician? Are we ensuring that they're staying long-term in the community? Cause it's not good to recruit them for two years and then have to re recruit a replacement in two years. Um, I think the difference you know you 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 go beyond just meeting with people and doing a transaction to actually meeting the people doing the transaction transaction and then basically becoming a colleague, a supporter, and a friend of that person because they're usually coming in from outside. You have to introduce them to the community. You know, you're you're really spending a lot of time with that individual over the first six, eight months. And then on an ongoing basis, they're they become a valid member of the medical staff.
0: So um Neshoba had an employed physician group?
1: Yes. Okay.
0: So that's important as well, right?
1: Yeah. 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 Especially in today's market. You know, a lot of places are still, you know, fifty fifty employed to independent. Many organizations are already eighty, eighty-five percent employed. I do think there's definitely a change in the physician, physicians coming out of medical school now, and what they're specifically looking for for work-life balance, and and the employed model is is really uh, where they're steering towards today.
0: So Neshoba is now part of the Steward system, is that correct? Yes. So were you part of the sale of Neshoba to Steward? I was. Was that while you were still there as the CEO? Uh,
1: Yeah. So I ended up uh, working with Essent to do the transition to Steward and then stayed after the transition and continued in my current role there at Neshoba for about two and a half more years.
0: Okay. So what was it like switching from, so Steward is also a for-profit system. What was it like switching systems?
1: It was a little different, I think. When we had the company in, in uh, Nashville, it, we had a, a a particular culture that was really, from my perspective, it seemed to be one of the better cultures of an organization I've ever worked in. We worked hard, but... And, and we and we um, challenged each other during the, the work hours when we were there. But we, we had a uh, background agreement that at the end of the day, when we were done the meetings, the meetings were done. We would go to dinner or go out and have a cocktail and we would go and not talk about work. It was, you know, more about who you were, how you doing and what that is. Moving with Steward, um, it was a different organization. Mostly, you know, they were all in Massachusetts at that time. So the organization was much more centric to one state, which created a little bit less knowledge transfer about what was going on in each area. So I think that was a little different, but it was also an organization that converted a not-for-profit system to a for-profit system. And so they were really just new in that whole environment. So it was more of people with not-for-profit backgrounds converting over and they hadn't become a mature organization at that point. So, you know, now that they've expanded, um, I think they're around a 30, you know, 18 or $20 yeah. billion dollar organization now. Um, yeah, they've I been think, growing like crazy, right? Yeah. yeah and I think that, or, you know, I think they've done well. Uh, Dr. De Torre, probably one of the smarter people I've ever met in my life. A very intelligent, willing to try anything. It was great to work with them that way, but it was an organization that was changing and had a lot of change throughout the organization and now that they've grown it seems to be much more mature in what they're trying to do for a business model.
0: So so in 2013 you left Neshoba and the steward system and moved to the UMass memorial system to to become president and chief executive of Marlborough Hospital where you continue in that role today. Yes as well as so we'll kind of fast forward a little bit here as well as you are recently added to your responsibilities being the interim president and ceo of health alliance clinton hospital which is also a umass memorial system hospital so let's uh let's talk about marlboro what drew you from neshoba to marlboro
1: um you know good bad or indifferent after after 13 years in, in one area, um, 11 years at, at Neshoba, I was just looking for some type of change, you know, with Stewart, I was, uh, we were potentially buying another hospital and I was interimly running that for a short period of time. And then we decided not to purchase it. So getting that creative juice flowing again with a new opportunity kind of spiked my interest. And when the opportunity at Marlboro came up, I looked at what was going on there. They were in the process of building a new cancer center. Um, It was an organization, UMass, that was struggling and Marlboro itself was struggling. Uh, And I saw it as another opportunity to go out and see if I could replicate the model that I've been working on other facilities that were turnarounds. And bring in, which for me was an opportunity to work with the CEOs uh, across UMass, as well as the the head of UMass Memorial Healthcare, Dr. Dixon, and hopefully bring in my for-profit background and provide that as a benefit and move us more to an execution strategy. So we've been working on that for six years. And hopefully people, you know, I, I know people look at me sometimes and still shake their head, but I'm more I'm more willing to take some risks than they are. And we look at things differently. So it is progressing, and we were able to get Marlboro turned around in the first year and stabilize that organization. In fact, it actually became the the most profitable piece of UMass for two years in a row. And that was interesting because it was the smallest organization at UMass. Wow. Uh, most yeah. profitable
0: in, in a percent terms or in, in, in absolute terms?
1: In one year, it was uh, in percent, and in the second year, it was in absolute. So
0: Wow. <laughs> that's, that's impressive, considering <laughs> yeah. the size of uh, of the UMass uh, hospitals. Yeah, wow. So it sounds like you have a role, even though you're the CEO of Marlboro, it sounds like you have a significant role with the system.
1: Yeah, all of us, uh, all the community, all the entity CEOs sit on our core team at the at the system level. And there's about 14 people total that sit on that corporate core leadership team and we go through we were meeting every Monday to talk about system strategy for every facility as well as what we could do to grow the UMass brand and what we could do to improve outcomes and care across the organization. So I spent on average a day or two a week in Worcester working with that team as well as running the hospital locally.
0: Wow, that's an uh, that's a um, that's neat that that the system really draws on all the component leaders.
1: Yeah, it's good. And, it, you know, it keeps the component leaders actually actively engaged in working towards a similar goal across the entities.
0: Talk a little bit about, talk a little bit about Marlboro Hospital. Uh, tell us, so where's, for folks uh, who are not from Massachusetts, where's Marlboro? Uh, what are the geographic factors that impact that organization? Uh, and, and maybe kind of how does that fit into the larger UMass system?
1: Yeah, so so Marlborough is the geographic midpoint between Worcester and Boston on 495. You know, it's a great community. It has a lot of commuter towns and neighborhoods for people who live in Boston. Uh, and it's to the eastern front of UMass. So we consider ourselves the eastern front, which is good and bad. It's, it's great to be considered the front, but it's also challenging because there's definitely an out-migration from central Massachusetts to the Boston market. It's tough to compete in a market where two of the top four hospitals in the country are co-located and membership branded together. Uh, So we're always competing against that pull. On top of that, we have Children's in Boston and Dana-Farber that we compete against. So there's definitely a uh, gravitational pull towards Boston, but we're trying to be a good community hospital in that market meet the needs of that community for stuff that we can do locally, which we do a great job on. I think we're, we just got our LeapFrog A this year. Um, we you know, we follow a Vizient. It's a vendor that does comparative analysis across the board, and we hit their four-star standard with the current data. So, you know, we're progressing forward to get up to the five-star, but we're not there yet. So we do do provide a good product to the community. We're a full-service hospital that the only thing that we don't do for the most part, is we do not provide OB services. Uh, That was a strategic change back um, in the early 2000s, late 90s. And the reason being is they were not doing enough births to really be a high-quality program. And if we did, did that, you're just pulling births away from other community hospitals and reducing the overall quality for the community.
0: Is that a, I mean, a, when we talk, when I talk with organizations that do retain OB, it's usually, you know, we want to have that service because moms make the healthcare decisions. And if a mom has a baby in our facility, they're more likely to kind of come back. It's kind of, it's usually some sort of kind of strategic uh, goal. Yeah. Uh, so you, but you're not, uh, you decide I mean, the, the logic you're expressing seems reasonable. You don't want to have a poor quality service, of course.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's some of the challenges for a lot of communities to see that as the opportunity. But, you know, we do have OBs in our market. They just birth at the University Medical Center in Worcester. Okay. And as long as we can keep the pre and post care in the community, I think you get the same benefit. You know, you know your, your, your organization is only as strong as its perceived brand strength and quality. If you have, good, bad, or indifferent, a, a negative outcome on a baby that's publicly communicated, it just, uh, it just can't sit well for a small organization. Uh, so that's a lot of risk you're taking on that side. So we, we, you know, usually the number, you have to do probably 600 or more to be a proficient program. If you get below that number, you're not doing, it, uh, uh, you're not doing enough births to really uh, ensure that everybody who works in that unit is birthing enough patients each year to maintain their competencies.
0: Yeah. So you do the pre and posts. So means So that means you have all the prenatal care at Marlboro and then when, no, when it's time, so we, sorry.
1: We, yeah. So we don't have it at the hospital. We have it oh, in no, our, we have a, we have in our large physician practices, they do practices. it there. Yeah. Yeah. But we, if they come into the hospital, we care for them, but.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I, I misspoke. Yeah. So, so, so yeah. yeah. So, but your physicians who are part of your system, uh, part of the Marlboro physician group take, do that care, but the actual, birth is at 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 UMass. Yes. And then they come back and uh, and have their well baby checks and so forth back in in the Marlboro community.
1: Yeah, at the private doc's offices. Yep.
0: Sure. Okay. So so that's a model I, that it seems like that's a model that most systems are kind of applying Uh, where you have a tertiary care facility and then you have the community hospitals around is goes well beyond OB, right? You're trying to do some care in the, in your community, and then you're partnered with a tertiary care facility that can take that next level.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we, we try to manage it. You know, most academics are the challenge there is those buildings are very expensive to build. So, as a system, you want to really balance your resources and and make sure you're balancing volume to the right area so that an academic for us we we t- we take seven, eight hundred uh, transfers from other facilities a month at the academic. And on top of that, we don't have enough beds, we end up turning some of them away currently. So we're going through a project now to um, basically rebalance the system, push some of the services out to the community hospitals that don't need to be done in the academic, which frees up additional academic beds where they can adi- you know, bring in more high, high risk, high uh, reimbursement patients to that setting, which is a better setting for the training and the education for the residents.
0: So let's, uh, let's talk about your, your kind of your leadership team. So you're the CEO Mm -hmm. Uh, who reports to you kind of positionally who, who reports to you and how do you, how do you lead through that team?
1: Sure. So I have, so we're a smaller hospital. We're only about $85 million. So we're at that spread where we have a combined chief operating officer, chief nursing officer. Okay. And the theory behind that, you know, to have both, it doesn't make a lot of sense because they're really overlapping each other in a smaller facility. So I spend most of my time with that person working through the clinical programs, uh, working through shared management of our quality departments. My CNO CNO really works on the quality of nursing outcomes and that and I work on the quality side about how we're gonna com- communicated to the community. What's it what's the perception, how are we perceived throughout? On top of that, I have a CFO. They do all the financials. I try to stay out of that now. I know I have the background and I create some uh, danger because I, I, I understand it enough, but I don't really want to play in that world on a daily basis. Yeah. And then outside of that, I have a VP of quality and regulatory reporting, which seems to be a bigger and bigger uh, role throughout all organizations right now with the expansion of acos the expansion of medicaid managed care products and all these quality programs and who we're reporting to it just it just seems to be such a a bigger role than it used to be it used to be just focusing on your internal quality now it's just across the board and how we work with joint commission to ensure that we're providing a high reliability organization and everything related to that so that's a, a you know burgeoning role right now throughout most organizations
0: that and that role i mean what you're talking about a a lot of like the acos and so forth that really ties directly into reimbursement now more and more so right
1: yeah yeah you know it's unfortunate though if you look at most of the acos well if you look at the the money that's been invested and spent to run ACOs, the actual savings that, that organizations have achieved it only generates like 20% of the total cost of these things. Okay. So in long-term it's like, how do you make this continue? But you still have to play in the sandbox no matter what. Yeah. So the rules have just been ramping up by every payer, every, every, risk contract that you're bringing in, you have to create a, you know, an additional structure to ensure that you're meeting those standards or you're leaving money on the table.
0: What is a, for, for, particularly for my students, what's a risk yeah. contract?
1: So there's different models of it. Uh, the base level of a risk contract is telling a payer, either the government payer or a third party payer, we're going to cover this population of yours in our market for this dollar amount. If we spend more than that, it's on our dime. And if we spend less, it's on your dime because you're paying us that budget. Where it becomes different is when you get into these Medicare shared savings programs, where if you get some savings, um, you have to save above a certain threshold to actually receive that savings or Medicare gets all that savings to itself because you're not taking any downside risk. Okay, You're only taking upside risk. So there's lots of different pieces to it.
0: Do you see? So you're saying most organizations are not earning back the investment they're spending to execute these programs. Is this just we're at our, you know kind of the crawl stage of our conversion towards this new kind of value based system? And at some point, it's gonna there'll be a, a turning point where where this is much more the dominant model versus fee for service. Do you see that happening, or is it? Are we kind of clunking along and that's not clearly on the horizon?
1: Well, I think that's, we're in the wait and see mode for some of that. You know, originally the ACO type risk models started in the late 90s and they fizzled out pretty quick by 2000. And this is like ACO models 2.0. And there are some underlying benefits of some of these. I do think certain models have really coordinated the care. Not just at the hospital, we're actually working well beyond the hospital. We're looking at sniffs, we're working with home cares. we're working with you know technology companies that can provide biometric screening vests in the home, you know to control that care because hospitals probably are more looking at it this way we're not we might not be making the money on the a c o or savings that money, but As we look forward, the resources coming into hospitals is dwindling. You know, we're not getting paid as much. Plus, physicians, we have a physician shortage. There aren't a lot of physicians enrolling in schools. So how are you going to manage a larger population of people with fewer people long term? You have to keep looking at that other strategy and moving people outside the walls of the hospital to get alternative care and preventative care.
0: So we've talked about your CNO slash COO CFO, and your VP of Quality. Other other senior leaders that you really spend a lot of time with to to manage the organization.
1: Yeah. So I also have a CMO over both of the community hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a shared role, um, which is an interesting role to be shared. But as we go and standardize our bylaws across all the systems, you're kind of implementing rules that are consistent, which is a benefit, so you can leverage that administrative cost. And then on top of that, I have VPs of development and marketing. Um, you know, basically, okay. how do we communicate to the community and how do we fundraise?
0: All right. So what's the day in the life of of Steve Roach like these days? It's changed significantly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, you know, running one organization was, uh, was pretty straightforward. You know, you, you arrive early. Um, usually I'm up doing emails at five fifteen, five thirty in the morning. And I try to go to the gym before I go to the office, because if you don't, you don't own the rest of the day, you never know what's going to happen at the hospital. So it's not very consistent as soon as you arrive. So I try to go in the morning. Uh, and then, when I get in, I spend my first hour of the day, half hour, going through some e- more emails, or looking at um, our daily statistics. How did we do yesterday? What is the current status throughout the hospital? You know, we need to know what the resource planning is. Do we see an influx coming? Is the OR busy, et cetera? We need to plan for that. Uh, and then I do a 15 minute safety huddle with the whole hospital um, every day. And we go hospital. to the whole hospital. Wow. So it's, it's the management leadership usually come and staff are invited if they can make it. And we basically go area by area talking about what is your unit like today? Do you need any additional resources? Do you have equipment that's not working? Are there some difficult patients we can, we need to plan for, you know, we want to create a safe environment for our staff and caregivers here so that we need to take full ownership of what's going on throughout the organization. After that's done, then the day really begins. I'll do usually a half hour of rounding a day, different departments, go see frontline staff to see how they're doing, uh, if there's anything that they're experiencing in the area. We also do Lean and Gemba. Uh, we're a very lean okay. organization. We follow the Toyota uh, production model and incorporated that into healthcare. So every unit has their own um, daily huddles with GEMBA boards and we try to, we have a schedule that's set up. So every day we have to go to some of these uh, and we work with the staff, you know, what are you seeing? What are your opportunities? What are your goals? Where did you fail? And it's okay to fail. That's that piece that people get. It's a red, but we celebrate the reds because it's an opportunity to make improvement. Mm-hmm. If you're setting a goal, that's always going to be green. That's not really a stretch goal. You want to have some, some challenges. And then we do idea boards with them. We've, as an organization, have implemented over 80,000 employee ideas over the last five years. And many of these uh, ideas, it's not for ideas to improve the organization. It's an idea to improve their workplace and what they do on a daily basis. And some of those ideas require administrative support to either get them new equipment or, or how can we help them achieve that. And after that's done, I spend a lot of time with the physicians. I usually try to round on two or three physicians a day, make sure we're going through some meetings. And then from there, you never know what the end of the day shapes up like. It really depends on how it starts.
0: Okay. And how has that changed now that you're stretching over, over two organizations?
1: Um, well, the first part is I'm, I'm just learning this new organization, the Health Alliance. Um, so I have to spend a lot more time just listening. I'm not actively managing it. Clearly, I am in the background trying to understand it and manage it. But I don't want to go out and tell people, oh, we're not doing this right. Let's do it this way. I want to hear why they're doing it the way they're doing it so that we all understand which decisions have been made in the past. You know, my decisions are going to be different than the previous decisions, but that's okay. I'm not going to say those are wrong. It's just let's try this this way. Or if you have something that's working great, show me and I might buy into it and implement it at my other facility. So after we get past the learning stage, the biggest challenge I have, I have still spend about a day a week in Worcester with the system, three days at one hospital and one day at another. Um, I'll tell you, the electronic communication has increased significantly yeah. as well as just the driving around. You know, I, have, I haven't been here long enough to have changed my calendars at each facility to be efficient. So there are many nights I'll be here. I'll be in Lemonster till four o'clock and then have to drive over to Marlboro for a two hour meeting at five 30. I see. But I spent a lot of time in the car, but I've created lots of teleconferencing stuff still has to get done no matter where you are. It's just a, it's just a new experience and a new stress level to be responsible for something when you're not on site is difficult yeah. when you're not there uh, all the time. So yeah, it's just a learning opportunity.
0: <laughs> well, that's great. Um, let's switch gears and uh, talk a little bit about leadership. So what would you say is your leadership philosophy?
1: Um, you know, I think it's actually morphed over the years, and it really depends on the roles you're in. Uh, at the at the core of it, really, my, my goal is to be more on the servant side. I want to listen to people, get their feedback and find ways that I can work with them to drive my policies and practices forward doesn't feel good to anybody. And it's not really even doesn't even feel good to me if I have to implement something and just tell people, this is how we're doing it, whether you like it or not, because you're not getting buy-in. And at the end of the day, you spend so much time at work with people. It'd be better if you had people bought in and engaged to the outcome so that it takes a little less energy to get to those solutions. So I like spending uh, well, time with everybody.
0: <laughs> well, that's a good thing as a leader, right? I mean, you, you, it, it is about people. Yeah. Well, what would you say are the characteristics and behaviors of a good leader?
1: You know, y- y- it, it's a balance. I think you need to have a strong fortitude. You're going to make some decisions that make people upset. But you have to just accept that. I look at the organizations, especially community hospitals, I look at them a little different than some people. This is a community asset. So the community hospital needs to succeed. I don't need to succeed. So if we make decisions that reflect reflect negatively on me but strengthen the facility, I'm okay with that. So you have to be willing to take risk but controlled risk. You don't want to just, you know, willy nilly throw stuff out there. That's not going to be out there. You need to evaluate it before you do it. And I think just in general, people need to spend time listening. That's, that's the biggest piece throughout my career that I've learned. And I learned it quickly because I was pretty confident of myself. And sometimes it's way ben- way more beneficial to sit and listen to somebody else before you speak. So that
0: that kind of brings me. Let me let me ask you to kind of go in a little deeper on that because I like to ask senior leaders what's a leadership lesson that that they learned the hard way. It sounds like maybe that was yours. Yeah,
1: I've things? had a, I've, I've had a couple. Okay. Um, okay. I'll give a a, a a really recent example. Six years ago, when I went into Marlboro, um, it was a turnaround situation, so I was really focused on that. But at the same time, I. Was reviewing some of the quality and the performance, and identified that we could probably get some improved outcomes in our imaging area if we converted the private group to the university radiology group. And went about that in a way that I did not um, reach out and get everybody's perspective before making that decision. Um, It would have been a lot easier if I had discussed it with the medical executive leadership in detail one on one versus bringing it to to them as a group saying, hey, here's an idea, this is what we should do, and here's the contract, let's talk about this. Because it created lots of issues and a lot of time and stress throughout the organization to do that. At the end of the day, it was the right decision, but it was the wrong way to go about that decision. What do you look for when you're hiring leaders, when
0: you're building your team?
1: Yeah, for the most part, you know, I'm looking for people that I can work with that have the right personality. Most people, when they get to the level of a job that they're going to work with me, have the credentials or the background or the knowledge base to do the job. But what you don't want to do is bring somebody into the culture you've created that doesn't fit. That usually creates lots of issues, but it doesn't mean you want to get a wallflower either. You want somebody who's going to push things forward but they need to be able to do it within the confines of what the culture is. So when I look at their resumes and go through it, I'm looking for people who have done some creative things. Anybody can find five references for their, re- for their resume. I can find five people that like me today. That doesn't <laughs> necessarily right. mean you're a good employee. I want to I understand how you work, what your philosophy is, and whether or not it meshes with my ideals.
0: So you're talking a little bit about culture. Yes. Yeah what is organizational culture? Why is it important? And I guess what aspects of culture are particularly important to you? How do you try to shape and nurture the important things about culture for you?
1: Well, I think, I think your culture is the lifeblood of the organization. That's how you get people engaged. If everybody's got the right environment and the right culture, it makes things easier makes it easier to to have a hard discussion. It makes it easier to make change and it makes it easier to celebrate the successes you've had because everybody's kind of on the same page. You spend a lot of energy and time getting people on that page. If the culture is not consistent across the board. And I think it's, it's hard with frontline staff because they don't see culture as their role, even though they really leadership doesn't create culture it can only provide energy for that culture to succeed and move forward. You know, there's many more frontline staff than there are managers and administrators in the hospital. So if we think that small number is going to change the larger contingent, it's not going to happen. We can only help guide it. Yeah. But most people don't come to work trying to have a bad day or have a bad patient experience they're really engaged and want to have a good day. And really, if you can figure out how to work with them to get there, and it doesn't happen overnight. It's probably taken us five, six years at Marlboro to get to this level. And we actually have a pretty good group right now. And we may disagree on a lot of things, but you know, I respect their opinions on it and we'll listen to them and they'll do the both with me, which is what you want to get to. Uh, so what are the, yeah, it's, what, it's hard. Yeah.
0: Sorry. What are the values okay. that you're trying to- per- perpetuate within your culture?
1: Yeah, I think it's honesty and trust. You know, nobody's out to get anybody in the hospital. Clearly, at some points, we will have to do make some tough decisions for certain individuals. Um, If they're not performing up to par or creating an unsafe environment or not buying into the programs, we'll have to make a, a transition. But we want to be upfront and honest with people, you know, this is why we're doing it. And we don't try to hide that. And there's no games in the background. We like transparency. At the end of the day, all of my goals are the same goals as everybody else in the organization. You shouldn't have different goals by different levels, because if everybody's not rowing in the same direction, you're not going to get there.
0: So you, you have had a, a... A rather remarkable career in, in terms of the level of responsibility that you you took on at, at a relatively young age. Did you have mentors along the way that helped you develop the skills and and approaches that that influence you and and uh, and that you use today?
1: Yeah, I think it's important to have um, you know it's it's less at this point having mentors but more having a group of colleagues that I can bounce ideas off. You know, I think early in your career, you, you really want the mentor where they're spending time helping you and crafting which ways you should go for learning or education or opportunities. But after you've gotten to certain job levels, I think it's you're better off having peers who are also going through the same issues that n- not necessarily work at the same organization. I have a group of people I can talk to that I've known for many years that are doing the same thing and reach out and just say, Hey, this is a problem I'm having. What do you guys think? How should I go about this? This is, you know, it's good to have a a non-connected buffer.
0: Yeah. I mean, I have, I've talked to a lot of CEO, CEOs and one of the, one of the themes that comes up when I ask about, you know, what's, what's this role like? And they talk about it being lonely. Is that a, um, so you're talking about having peers at, other organizations is that kind of a way of getting around that
1: yeah it's my way it doesn't mean it's right for everybody you know i think you know it's certainly you know it's lonely at the top it's fact of what it is at the end of the day you have to make the decisions and the calls and sometimes they're popular and sometimes they're unpopular um and it's hard to be um friends with people you might have to um have an argument or a correction in their work Environment. You know, it's good to be a professional colleague, but you can't, I can't have certain conversations with the people who work around me because some of those conversations I need to get clarity on really involve them or, or it gives me a guidance to go that way. As far as true loneliness, I don't think so. I think there's so many people in, in healthcare um, and there's so many people who have the passion there. They're always willing to uh, support you. It's just hard to get to that agreement level early on. Yeah, you know, they okay. have to really trust you to get there.
0: So staying with mentorship for a second do you do you have uh early careerists mid careerists who kind of uh you feel like you are in a mentorship role too or you are a mentor uh, too
1: Yeah absolutely you know there are people who you know throughout my career that I've I've brought along and they still reach out to me on a regular basis. Um, I've a couple of my people who've worked for me are running hospitals, one locally and one in another state, which is great. Clearly, they've gone and done their own thing, but they've learned a few things from me, but we still reach out and talk to each other. I do think it, it changes as you go along. The you know, It's great to have the mentors through getting to a certain level, but after that, I think it goes from mentor to actually hiring some coaches because I think you're looking for a different type of feedback. So every couple years, we go through coaching programs. I do myself. Oh, okay. One, the last one I actually went through was with a psychiatrist,
0: a psychologist,
1: not a psychiatrist, psychologist, <laughs> okay. to understand. You know, ask them, take some testing to figure out how I interact with people, uh-huh. and creating some uh, uh, opportunities for me to journals to track how did I deal with this process, what was my result, and then meet with them every 2 months and go through, hey, here's five items. This is how it happened. This is the outcome. Is there anything based on the my makeup that I could have done differently or how could I look at this differently to get a better result? So,
0: so what's the difference in your mind between coaching and mentorship? $40,000 cup of coffee versus a nice fat check. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, your mentor mentor is somebody you can bounce lots of different ideas off Uh and just have somebody you can just reach out to at any point versus the coach is not your friend. Right. There's somebody, there's a specific goal up front that you're working on and you have to define that. You know, what what are your weaknesses? Everybody has weaknesses and, and you're just trying to find skills or ways to mask them or improve them. And you have to be willing to take that risk. You know, it's not easy to have somebody tell you, hey, this is a problem for you, but you have to just accept it. We're not all good at everything. Right.
0: Okay. Speaking of kind of development, what professional organizations or, or associations do you belong to? And, um, and what, do they, what do you seek to get out of them?
1: Yeah, you know, um, and I think it's changed over my career. I clearly, I, I'm a member of HFMA and ACHE. Um, uh, and you know, you use them at different times for different things. I use HFMA originally when I first started out primarily as my contact base because I was working in the finance world and needed to understand things and look for new opportunities and have people who are doing the same type of stuff. And then as I progressed up to the CFO, COO, CEO levels, I moved more from the HFMA to ACHE because I was looking for more information around general management, general healthcare, what's going on, Uh, and it's great to have those. And now I'm, I'm I'm less focused on those specifically, and really focused on different executive groups because I'm dealing with different types of issues today. I'm still involved with HFMA and ACHE, and I go to some of the events just to understand current knowledge and get some new education around stuff and also to reach out to vendors and different things going on. But we're at a, uh, you know, now in my career, I'm actually at a point where I've got executive programs under certain vendors that we are contractually obligated to work with. Uh, And it's a small exec invite only group and some thought leadership councils where we're brought in just to talk and get ideas from others about things that we could do differently in in, in healthcare just in general. I
0: mean, you you talked about early in your career, HFMA, a little later, ACHE. I mean, uh, it's as we've been talking, your story has uh, the stories, kind of your your personal story you've been telling me. It sounded like a lot of your opportunities came out of your network. Absolutely. Um, How did did you I mean, were you deliberate about developing a network? Because this is something I try to talk to the students about, you know, the importance of that.
1: Yeah, you know, (laughs) It's it's deliberate, but it's informal. You know, the majority right. of the network you you create, you know, usually if you just randomly send a note to somebody saying, "Hey, I'd like to catch up," it's you get probably a five percent chance of actually meeting that person. But right. if you can work with people and have good relationships with different people at your organization as you start, you know, the more more projects you can get involved in, the more access to other people. That's how you create that network, and then from that you can use those people for introductions to other people, and then you have a much higher success rate of maybe having a cup of coffee with somebody at a different organization that you don't know because you have a co friend or co worker that you know somebody knows them. It's just you just have to parlay it in any event that you can. But it's very important to to get to know as many people, and it also helps to be likable. (laughs)
0: Likable is good, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So in conclusion, um, can I ask you, what advice would you give to, you know, a young person uh, coming out of college uh, today, maybe HMP, maybe Mm -hmm. not, uh, looking at healthcare administration? What, where should they, where's the growth opportunities? What kind of training should they be looking at? Uh, You know, what, what's the, what's the, the, the road forward look like these days from your perspective?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I'll answer that in two ways. The first one, I've had a a couple of your students who've reached out to me recently, and that's one of the questions they ask me, which is good. Um, I do, you know, in my, my feedback, I hope, has been pretty consistent. Don't always take your first job because it pays the most. I do think, you know, as you look at these careers, take the job that provides you the most opportunity or education. It may pay you the most, but if you're going to be pigeonholed into one thing and not learn, it's it, you know it's great that you're getting paid more, but it's not benefiting you long term. And then from as you go past that, with the expanding technologies, what's going on in healthcare, you know, there's lots of opportunity both through the IT side as well as you know these biomedical engineering firms that are coming up coming up with uh, wearable healthcare devices. You can hook it to your iPhone to get a six-six lead EKG. You can wear a sweatshirt, to go out for a run, and it can tell you where is the blood flow, or you have any backup in blood flow to your heart. There's so much technology coming out today, and the advancement of AI and you know machine-based learning is is just fantastic out there. So there's there's a whole world of opportunity. You just have to take it. Yeah.
0: Steve, thank you so much for your time today. It's been great. I appreciate you taking... I know you're super busy, so I appreciate you taking the time to talk (laughs) with me.
1: Well, thanks for having me on, Mark. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, hopefully this benefits somebody.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, For more information or to leave comments about today's podcast, look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again soon.